Well, that was pretty awesome, wasn't it? Isn't the presence of God good? How many of you, how many of you feel like you had an exchange there? Maybe a little bit of heaviness was laid down for that garment of praise. So good. So good. You know, this, this room, when we bought this, turned this warehouse into a church, they didn't build this warehouse for uh, hosting this many people for worship nights, I guess. But I'll have you know, here's some good news for you. We opted for the, uh, the upgrade on the new building in the AC unit. So, yeah, it's going to be nice and cool and quiet, quiet and nice and cool. It's going to be great. You teenagers comfortable? Good. Well, how many of you are ready to hear from the Lord tonight? Well, man, I, I am so jazzed. I really am because um, Pastor Lee is here tonight. And I, I can't tell you how much I, I look up to this man of God. I, I've been following him for years and really following their church the past few years. And like, I feel like what they're doing in, in, at Radiant in Kalamazoo, Michigan is such a beautiful model of the kind of church we want to be. When, when New Song grows up, I want us to look like Radiant. We're turning seven this week. When we get, when we're, when we get big, we want to be like them. Because they, I'm telling you, and, and Pastor Lee's heart is so amazing. His heart for people, his heart for God. Um, just, it, it is a great privilege of ours tonight to have him in this house. And it's, it really is such a cool moment for me. Um, I started listening to Pastor Lee on podcasts years and years ago before New Song was ever a thing. And it's just so cool how God brings people together and, and makes opportunities like this come up tonight. So I really do. I want you to set your heart to hear from the Lord because I know that, that He is going to bring a word tonight that I believe will be a prophetic word for, our, for this house. And I believe He's going to call us up to some stuff tonight. Call us up to a new level, a new standard, a new place that God is, is moving us to. As we move from one season into the next, I believe this is going to be a landmark moment for us. So would you do me a favor, church? I want you to stand to your feet and let's welcome, give honor where honor is due and welcome Pastor Lee Cummings as he comes No matter what it takes, we will have the purpose of God at the center of the church again. Thank you. This is going to be fun. It is such an honor to be here tonight, uh, all the way from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Has anybody in this room ever been to Kalamazoo, Michigan? Oh, look at that. A bunch of homies in the room. I love it. Uh, I have with me tonight uh, my good friend, uh, Sonny Mazar. Sonny, stand up and wave at everybody. He is... Uh, Sonny is my partner in crime. He helps us uh, lead our network of churches that we have kind of scattered across the United States. And uh, yes, we're from Kalamazoo. So 26 years ago, actually this coming weekend, so while you're turning seven, we're turning 26. Uh, my wife and I moved from a great church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, to Kalamazoo, which is a, it's a university town. I was 25 years old, Jane was 24, we had two kids, no money, no experience, a little red trailer called Tabernacle One, and the first meeting room that we met in was the home of the Blue Devils, and the only room that we could rent had a big sign over the door that said, welcome to the Devil's Den. <laughs> and that's, that's where the miracle began. And God has been so incredibly faithful to us over the course of the last 26 years, uh, and we give all the glory and all the credit to God because it's a miracle that only God could have done. Yeah. Uh, we started in a little town. Kalamazoo is really the city. We started in Richland, population 1,400 people, flashing red light in the middle of a cornfield. And uh, since that time, God has given us three locations across our county uh, and thousands of people and uh, just a, a, truly a miracle. And every Sunday, I still sit in the same corner room looking out the window and I'm shocked when cars pull in. Uh, and, I, and I never want to lose that because when you're in the middle of a miracle, sometimes you're unaware of it yeah. and you need to be reminded of it. And I want you guys to know here at New Song, you are part of a miracle. Uh, what God is doing here in this church, just being here for a few moments in worship, uh, this, this is not normal. And by the way, let me just communicate and say that your pastors, Josh and Sarah, are not normal. 
<laughs> they are they are extraordinary. They are world-class leaders. I love them, respect them so much. And uh, when they invited me to come, uh, it was an easy yes just to be here. I've gotten to know them just a little bit. And now to be here and see all of you and to see what God is doing here uh, is incredible. And so I count this as an honor uh, to be here with you today and uh, to be a part of a landmark moment, I hope, uh, in which the Holy Spirit wants to impart something to you and to all of us that is going to help propel us into the future. So can we, right now, I know that we've worshiped and we've prayed, but I never want to go into God's word without us recognizing and welcoming the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So would you join with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for the promise that you have given to us, that when we gather in the name of Jesus, you will be here by your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to come tonight. Would you come and open up our Open up our heart, open up our mind's eye, open up our spirit to be able to receive your word in the right way, to be able to see Jesus rightly. And Lord, that we would not just hear a word, but we would hear your voice. And your voice would change us and transform us from glory to glory, from faith to faith and from strength to strength. And we welcome you tonight, Holy Spirit, into this place. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to... Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk or Habakkuk, however you pronounce it, Old Testament prophet, chapter 3. I'm going to read two verses tonight to set up a message that I want to share with you. And I want to forewarn you that this is a message that the Lord gave me in the middle of a pandemic that was a once in a lifetime globally uniting pandemic in which None of us will ever come out the, the same on the other side of it. I really believe, <clears throat> I was thinking about this in the middle, in June of, of 2020, and the Lord just gave me this revelation. He said, do you realize that you're a part of something that is the first globally uniting event since the Tower of Babel, wow. in which the entire world, united and able to communicate and travel, is united around a single event? I want you to think about that for a moment. And in the middle of that, the Lord spoke to me in a very clear and a very prophetic way, in a very powerful way. And he gave me the message that I'm going to share with you. And he gave it to me and he said, Lee, this is a message that I want you to share in churches and in particular environments in which I'm going to establish very unique churches and leadership that will be carriers of the burden and also the privilege of a new move of God. Yeah. So I believe that God is positioning and setting up the body of Christ right before our eyes for a new move, for a new thing that he's doing. But he's laying the groundwork for it. And the message that I'm going to share with you, I believe, is a prophetic call for us to take that responsibility. And coming in this week, the Lord shared, just really prompted me, said, this is one of those places. I want you to share this message at New Song. And the title of the message is New Wine, Fresh Oil, and Old Fire. New Wine, Fresh Oil, and Old Fire. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse number 1, it says this. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. One translation says it like this. Oh God, we have heard of what you have done in previous generations. Renew your works in our day and do it again now. So Habakkuk was a prophet in Israel at a very critical moment at a critical mass moment, a tipping point moment in the life of Israel. If you go back and you read it, it's a very short book. God starts with speaking to Habakkuk, who's a prophet, about the moment, the cultural moment that Israel was in. He talks about impending judgment that is coming by the Babylonians who are going to come into Israel, who are going to be used to judge Israel. But then God also is speaking to this prophet in such a way saying, I want you to take the post 
of a watchman and I want you to warn my people because we're, I, what I would really rather do is do a new thing in the midst of my people. But in order for me to do a new thing, I have to gain their attention again. And my goal is not to destroy, my goal is to define. My goal is to define the people of God as distinct and separate from all the rest of the world. And if what it takes to do that is to put some pressure on my people, that's what I'm gonna do. And Habakkuk, I'm raising you up to be a prophet and to write it out and to communicate. It was a very, very pivotal moment in Israel's history because it could either go into judgment or it could go into revival. And so Habakkuk is praying this particular prayer and he's like, Lord, I've heard all the days of my life about the things that you have done in our nation's history. I've heard the stories about how you brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and you defeated Pharaoh, separated the Red Sea, provided for them water from a rock and bread from nowhere every single morning. I've heard the stories of David slaying Goliath. I've heard how you routed the enemies, how you raised up Gideon. I've heard the stories over and over my entire life. But now what I'm saying is that in this critical moment, what I need is more than Sunday school stories. Lord, I don't need secondhand stories. I need firsthand encounters with you. And I'm saying, God, do in our generation, do in this day the things that I've heard that you've done in other generations. This is the prayer. And it reminds me of when I was a little boy. So I was born in Detroit. My mother was 20. My dad was 19 years old when I was born. My dad was a minor league baseball player, threw his arm out, got addicted to heroin, left my mom and me in an apartment in the inner city of Detroit. My mom didn't have any place to go, and so my grandparents took us in. And my grandparents were incredibly godly people. They were, uh, they were Southern Gospel Quartet singers, so I don't know if anybody's familiar with that genre, but I grew up listening to the Cathedrals, the Spears, the Blackwoods, the Dixie Melody Boys. I can sing four-part harmony. I was the little kid. I'm not doing it, but uh, where they brought me up on stage to sing Jesus Loves Me dressed in the same suit that my grandpa was. Uh, And my grandfather did the itinerantly driving around the country on a bus But then he worked Monday through Friday in General Motors in an automotive factory. And my grandparents took my mom and I in and they became my default parents. And so my earliest memories are crawling onto my grandfather's lap 5.30 in the morning before he went to work and him reading the Bible to me. See, he had a Bible that I called a 50-pound heathen choker. That, that thing was black, it was King James, it was bigger than a Detroit phone book, and it had large print. And you would sit on his lap and he would read the Bible to me. I learned to love prayer, love the word of God by watching my grandfather. My grandmother played piano, and so every morning she would, you know, she would sit down and she would play an old hymn. And they taught me to love Jesus, and one of the things that they would do for many, many years of my life, even as a... 11, 12, 13-year-old boy that was fascinated by their stories was they would tell me stories about the revival that they got saved in the midst of. See, in 1948, my grandparents who were newly married would drive to Detroit to a church called Bethesda Missionary Temple that was in the middle of revival. And when I say revival, my grandparents were like 20, 21. They were Bible college students at this church And in 1948, the Holy Spirit was poured out in such an incredible way that on the opening day of a 3,000-seat sanctuary in Detroit, they filled it up three times, had services every single day for three years, had to move it to the Detroit uh, County Fairgrounds, and would see hundreds of thousands of people born again in the course of a decade. And so I would, as a little kid, sit and listen to my grandpa tell stories. And he would tell me stories about being in church on Sunday nights when they would have healing services and people would come in in wheelchairs and walk out. He would tell stories about blind eyes being opened in service. He would tell stories about how the worship leader named Jim Beal would be leading a a hymn and a song on a Sunday night 
And then all of a sudden he would tell all the musicians to stop and he would pull all the singers down and they would listen to angelic singing from the top of the cathedral ceilings for 45 minutes. And everybody looking around and nobody's mouth was moving, but they're listening to these symphony of harmonies that were just praising God. And I remember hearing these stories and something began to form on the inside of me as a 12, 13 year old young person. And what it was, was I became ruined for normal cultural Christianity because I had heard too much. I'd heard stories of altar calls where people would get saved, you know, altars would be full. And it ruined me for normalcy. 12 years old, I had an encounter with the Lord in a little church called Good Shepherd Assembly of God. My grandparents took me there on a Sunday night, August 11th, 1984. I did not want to go to church that night. I wanted to stay home and watch the Detroit Tigers play. That's when they were good. And instead, my grandfather, who was strict, he was like, no, we're going to church. See, I grew up at a time when you went to church Sunday morning and Sunday night. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And we went Wednesday night Bible study, and if the deacons were washing the windows on Tuesday, we went to amen them. And so it was Sunday night, and so we went to church, got into that little Plymouth Horizon, and we went to church. And there were 15... Adults, I was by four decades the youngest person in that service. And at the end of the service, the pastor called all of us down to the front 15 to stand in a circle and pray for one another. And in that moment, I, I like to say that God graciously interrupted my regularly scheduled programming. You see, because I had a very difficult childhood, very painful childhood. I won't go into details about it, but it, it was enough that I was a very quiet, I was a very insecure young, young person. But in that moment, I had an encounter with Jesus where I heard him call my name. I heard him say, I've chosen you to be a voice to your generation. Rise up and prepare to serve me. And all the moments of my life that even as an 11, 12-year-old kid that were very painful for me, all of a sudden came together. And I realized in a moment that I was created for anything but normal. And I want you to know tonight that in much the same way, I'm here to say to you, you were not created for normal Christianity. You were not created for cultural Christianity. You were not created for a zero gravity environment where everybody around you believes what you believe and that you just live a nice little quiet life and you live in you know, silence all the way to the grave. The goal of your life is not to safely arrive at death. The goal for your life is not to drink Coke products and suck oxygen until the day you can't. If the goal was just to get to heaven, then when, after you got saved and Pastor Josh baptized you, he would have just held you under the water until the bubbles stopped coming up and we would have celebrated that another soul went on to glory. But the fact that you came up out of the water in the newness of life means God has something for you as well. And... <clears throat> Tonight, what I want to do is I want to do for you what my grandfather did for me, which was to provoke you, to contend with God, to do something in our moment, because I believe that we all sense that the world will never be the same again. But it's not going to be because the devil has done something or because sin has done something. God is not in heaven biting his nails going, I didn't see this coming. This is a moment that in eternity past, God said, I'm gonna use this critical moment to do a new thing. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna allow this to take place so that it wakes up my church, especially in the North American 21st century context where we're so comfort driven, where consumerism and comfort has become the God of the day. God says, I'm gonna shake you to wake you and then I'm going to remake you. I'm gonna make you into a new wineskin to do the new thing because you see, when God does something in the earth, he doesn't do it around the church, he does it through the church. But in order to do it through the church, he has to recaptivate the church. He has to get us to say, like Habakkuk said, Lord, do it in our day. What you've done before, do it in our day. 
And you can go back and you can study revivals, whether it's the first great awakening in America with men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield who traveled up and down the United States and preaching. And you might think in your mind, colonial United States of America, the founding days, everybody was a Christian. No, there was huge alcoholism, there was abuse, there was divorce, there was uh, apathy towards spiritual things, but God reawakened the hearts of America. Second great awakening, God raised up a man named Charles Finney who went all up and down Ohio and upstate New York. And they say that during the second great awakening, something like 25% of the population of America was converted in a 10 year period of time. You can look at the Azusa Street outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the turn of the century when God poured out his Holy Spirit in a little mission in Los Angeles, California upon black, white, brown, rich, poor, gathered together in a mission and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy and worship and people came from all over the world to be a part of it. In the year 1901, there were less than a thousand spirit-filled Christians on the globe that we know of. Today, there's 700 million, 122 years later. The most spoken language on the planet right now is Mandarin in China. There's more people that speak Mandarin. You know what the second most spoken language on the face of the earth is? It's tongues. By 2030, there will be more people that speak the language of heaven than any other language on the earth. That ought to just blow our minds. That's just happened in the last 20 years in fulfillment of Joel chapter two when God says in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In 1920s, there was a healing revival. In the 1940s, there was an evangelism revival. In the 60s, there was a charismatic renewal in the church. In the 60s and in the 70s, there was a revival among the hippies called the Jesus Revolution. In the 80s, there was the word of faith that was being taught. In the 90s, it was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on third wave churches. And now here we sit. And there is a generation in our midst Gen Z and the millennial generation that have heard us tell stories of what God has done. And they're waiting to see for themselves what God will do. And I believe God has poised the church right now. If we will respond in this moment, God is gonna pour out his Holy Spirit. He's gonna revive. He's gonna do something brand new in the earth that we've never seen before. But as I was praying in June of 2020, the Lord said there's three things that are necessary for the church to be positioned for what God wants to do in this hour. This is a tipping point moment. We're either gonna be ready for it or we're gonna miss it. If we miss it, I don't know what's gonna become of the church in America. I just don't. But I don't think we're gonna miss it. I really believe that there's hunger. Look at, I mean, it's a Wednesday night in Edmond, Oklahoma in a storefront warehouse and people are jumping like crazy worshipers like Jesus really might be alive. I mean, God's on the move. And listen, it's not just here and it's not just in Kalamazoo, Michigan, but it's all over. There's hot spots. There's tent poles of David's tabernacle that God is erecting and he's about to do a new thing in our hour. But these are the three things that are required. New wine, fresh oil, and old fire. So I wanna spend the next few moments that I have and I wanna walk through these with you. And as I do, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to do these and to stir these inside of you because we all need them. Number one is this new wine. A new day requires a new outpouring of his Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter two, this is how they describe the first Christians. As they were gathered together in the upper room, just as Jesus had commanded them to do in Acts chapter one, verse eight, when he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But don't leave Jerusalem until you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So once they did, and the crowds gathered around because they heard a noise, what did they, what did they accuse them of? They said, these are all drunk. I mean, it had to be some church service. <laughs> these are all drunk. They're all filled with new wine. 
But Peter, standing up with the 11 in verse 13, he said, men of Judea who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ears to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's the third hour of day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. The comparison of the Holy Spirit in his effect when a believer comes under the influence of it is new wine. Ephesians chapter five, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're called to be people that are filled with the new wine of his Holy Spirit. We need a new paradigm and a new way of thinking. And this is what Jesus meant in Matthew nine when he said the church has to become a new wineskin. You don't pour new wine into an old wineskin. You pour it into a new wineskin. What's the new wineskin? It's a new way of thinking. Here's what I believe that that means for us. Is I believe in our day, especially as American Christians, I can't speak to Asian Christians. I can't speak to African Christians or uh, Central American Christians. That's not my culture. So I'm not bagging on the American church, but the American church has a very unique dynamic to it. And here's what it is, is we are rich, we are prosperous, we have resources at our disposal that the rest of the church around the world does not necessarily have. And that's a good thing when we use it rightly, but it can also be a detriment when we depend on it instead of the Holy Spirit. You see, money can become a counterfeit to God. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and and this is what money does. Money allows us to do all kinds of things and build all kinds of things to where we don't necessarily say, I don't need God, but we only go to God when we can't do it on our own. I mean, think about it. When do we pray for healing? When we've done everything else. Because we've got Advil in the closet and you know we've got doctors and we've got doctor Zoom calls and we can make and we can Google what's wrong with us and just because we had a headache in a half an hour, we can convince ourselves we got a brain tumor. And I mean, <clears throat> we've got all these resources. Around the world, uh, I've, I've traveled in something like 18 different nations and when you go around third world nations, oftentimes, you'll see that they have a much easier time being uh, healed or experiencing breakthroughs because that's all they have. They don't have any other options. They don't have a plan B. <clears throat> what would happen in the church in America if we were to shift our focus away from the strength of our own hand back to the power of the Holy Spirit? So think about this for the first disciples in Acts chapter one, they had no Bible college education other than being with Jesus. They were persecuted. They didn't have cars. They didn't have mass transportation. They didn't have boats. They didn't have airplanes. They didn't have Google. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Instagram. They didn't have TikTok. They didn't have television. They didn't have radio. They didn't have the printing press. They didn't even have a complete Bible. But yet, they turned the world upside down because they had something that we kind of treat as secondary that needs to become primary, which is a dependency upon the Holy Spirit. Church, can I just tell you, we need the Holy Spirit. He's not an option. He's not an add-on accessory to our already good Christianity. Jesus told them, don't attempt to do ministry without him. How in the world do we think we are able to do that? We gotta come back to a place of dependency. I love buildings, I love LED walls, I love great music, I love hot coffee, I love all of that. Let's have all of that, but let's have the Holy Spirit at the center of what we do. <clears throat> and we gotta stop treating him like the crazy uncle that we put in the closet when company comes over. Don't, don't wave hankies at me. <clears throat> See, Christianity as usual must die. Years ago, there was a pastor from Nigeria, one of the largest churches in the world, was brought over by a, uh, a Christian parachurch organization to do a tour of some of the largest, most influential churches in America. And so this pastor was brought over from Nigeria. His church, he built a sanctuary that seats 700,000 people. Think about that. It's not like sanctuaries like you and I are familiar with, but it's a big shed. 
So they brought him over and he toured some of the greatest churches, seeker-sensitive churches, different churches, to see their productions, to see their services, to see their programs. And they took him on tour and at all these different places he would meet with leaders. Afterwards, this is 15 years ago, they sat down with him and a Christian magazine interviewed him and asked him the question. So you've seen the American church at its finest. What surprises you most about the American church? Here was his answer. He said, it surprises me how much you are able to do without the Holy Spirit. He says, in Africa, we don't have what you have, but we have power. He says, and it's not just on Sundays, our people have power. He says, you know, you have great buildings and you have great programs and great resources. I wish we had all of them. It's amazing to me what you're able to do without the Holy Spirit. E.M. Bounds, who was a great man who wrote on prayer about 100 years ago, said this, and this is very prophetic. He said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations, more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. He comes on men and women. He pours out his spirit on not our programs, but on us. But he only comes not where he's tolerated, but where he's celebrated. See, the Holy Spirit will not be tolerated. We got to come back to a place of holy desperation again. One of the things in, uh, you know, in every marriage, you have, Kazuntai, uh, uh, in, in every marriage, you have things where you differ on and maybe have a point of tension. So my wife, Jane, Jane and I have been married for 30 years. Our, one of our big differences is how we drive. Anybody relate to that? So Jane gets really nervous whenever the gas gauge gets below half. So it's half and she's like, we need to fill up. I like to drive down to as far as I can go. Because, you know, back in the day, you just had a red dial. Then they went to the red dial and a ding. And then now it's all electronic. In my car, on my dashboard, it says, you have 22 miles left. I don't believe them. I think somewhere in some German car factory, engineers were like, Americans are dumb. So they're going to run out of gas because they're going to push it to So what we're going to do is we're going to build in a buffer of like five or seven miles in there and just tell them they have 22 so they don't run out of gas. I will not accept that. So I like to drive and it only starts getting fun when you get to zero miles. Can I get a witness? I knew I was in the right church. And Jane, Jane's is so mad at me. I've never run out of gas, by the way. My son got in the car one time. And he's like, Dad, I think I can beat you. I'm like, no, you'll get nervous before I do. He's like, no, let's go. So we got to 17 miles past zero. And he's like, Dad, I give, I give. I'm like, weak faith, all right. So I, I, pulled, I pulled in, I filled up just for him but I would have kept going. You see, I say that in jest because it's kind of fun. It's a little game to see how far you can go on empty. That's great in your car, but it's a terrible way to relate to Jesus. And this is how a lot of us are living our lives. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 25 about 10 virgins, five that had their lamps, oil lamps full, and the other that came and we're only half. And when the night got dark and the wait got long, they ran out of oil. And they wanted to borrow the oil from the others. The oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of the anointing. And how many of us are living our lives with just enough to get by? 
You're living just enough to get by today, but you don't know what's coming. And so what has happened to us in 2020 is we were living our lives with just enough oil, just enough of the Holy Spirit, just enough anointing to get through 19 or 2019, but we had no idea what was coming in March of 2020. And in 2020, the night got dark and the wait got long and our oil ran out. And here's the problem. There's no such thing as secondhand anointing. You can't borrow somebody's anointing. You can't draft off of what somebody else has paid full price for. And what it has revealed to us is we can't live our lives any longer half full because our life is comfortable and we got great resources and we can kind of make it happen. Church, we got to come back to Acts chapter two. If we want Acts chapter three revival, we got to come back to an Acts chapter two infilling, which is going to require an Acts chapter one commitment to prayer. That's how we're gonna get to the place of new wine. But new wine's not the only thing that we need. New wine always leads to number two, which is fresh oil. Fresh oil, a new anointing requires fresh pressing. Paul the apostle wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse eight, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Notice he says we're pressed on every side, but not crushed. There's a difference between pressing and crushing. See, what I believe is that what the enemy has meant to destroy you, God is using to reveal you. That's the difference between pressing and crushing. Pressing is how you get oil from an olive. And one of the pictures of anointing, the smearing, the anointing, is that of the oil that comes from an olive. You would take an olive. I've been over to Israel a few times, and when you, you go there, archaeologists will show you an oil or an olive press. And in fact, on the Mount of Olives, just on the other side of the Kidron Valley, there is an olive grove there. It's the Mount of Olives. And when you go there to this day, they'll show you the cylindrical area that they would take the olives that are in season, they're ripe, and you place them in the press and then you would run a round stone over them that would press the fruit in the right season so that it would release the oil and then it would come down a drain and it would be collected. And it's pure oil. You can't get the oil out of the olive until it is pressed. And it can't be used to anoint anything until it's ripe in season. And when it's ripe in season, it then is prepared and qualified to go through the pressing. On the Mount of Olives, there's a garden called Gethsemane. I think you're probably familiar with that. It's where Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, went to meet with the Father and to pray. And he told his disciples, stay here, watch and pray while I go over here. And he prayed and he came back. And remember the disciples were asleep and he says, could you not tarry one hour? Jesus, when he prayed, It says that he was in such agony that he sweat great drops of blood. Scientists tell us that there can be such anxiety and stress that occur that blood vessels actually burst and move into the sweat glands so that blood comes out your sweat pores. And this is what Jesus experienced. And it was in that moment that Jesus said, Lord, if there's any other way for this cup to be removed from me, please do that. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This was a moment of preparation. And it was a a moment of pressing because you see the name Gethsemane means the place of pressing. This is where the anointing at the right time that was ripe in Jesus was pressed under the pressure of the moment and released his greatest anointing. In fact, the reason why you and I are saved today, the reason why we have relationship with God today is because in that garden, at the right time, 
Jesus allowed himself to be pressed to release the oil and the anointing that would save you and I. It's what gave him the power to go to the cross. It's what gave him the power to not call down angels. It's what gave him the power to say, I'm totally obedient to you, Father. Into your spirit, I com- into your hands, I commit my spirit. It was a new anointing. And the same is true for you and I today, for the church today. We're experiencing the pressing. But it's not to destroy us. See, there's a lot of people right now going, what's the future of the church? Books are being written saying, you know, we're living in a post-Christian culture. And nobody wants the Bible. Nobody wants Jesus. Nobody wants church. Nobody wants God anymore. And, you know, is the church just going to dissipate? Is it just going to go the way of the church of, of Europe? Is, is our best days behind us? And I'll tell you what, I believe with all of my heart, the best days of the church are still ahead. The most powerful days of the church are still ahead. But before the new anointing can be released through the church, there has to be pressing. And that's what's happening. God isn't crushing the church. He's not destroying the church. The church isn't out of control and it's not out of God's purview. God is pressing the church. Let let me explain it to you this way. Pressure releases anointing. But nobody likes pressure. If you take an astronaut and put him in a rocket, send him up to the International Space Station, and he lives there for nine months, he's living in a zero-gravity environment. There's no gravity, which means there's no pressure. You and I live on Earth where you don't even know it because it's all you've ever known, but you live under the weight of gravity, and we're just so familiar. It's what drives us, keeps us on the Earth. But when you go into space, there's zero-gravity. So get this, when you're in the International Space Station, you're in a zero gravity environment, that's why they float around. But that same astronaut, when he comes back to Earth, nine months later, will have to go through physical therapy because his muscles have atrophied because they've not had any pressure to keep them strong. See, the reason why your muscles regenerate is because of gravity that you're not even aware of. Every day you get up out of bed, you get up out of that chair, your muscles are exerting themselves against the pressure and it's making you stronger, it's keeping you healthy. But remove you from that and put you in a zero gravity environment, there's no longer any gravity and so your muscles atrophy. The American church has lived for far too long in a zero gravity spiritual environment. And now, for the first time, we're beginning to feel pressure. We're beginning to experience persecution. We're starting to experience the culture going in a divergent direction than the way that we've grown up and believe. There was a day where if you went to church, people thought you were a good person. Today, according to Barna's polls, most people think if you go to church every single Sunday, you're now an extremist. Culture has gone this way, but Jesus has gone that way. You know what half the church is doing and will do? Half of the church will cash in the Bible in Jesus and follow culture so they don't lose their place at the table. You know what that does? That crushes them. But there's something about when you experience the pressure of living for Jesus and there's a price attached to living for Jesus and everybody doesn't celebrate you because you're following Jesus and you've got to say no to a thousand things so you can say yes to the one thing that matters most. What happens is your muscles begin to develop the muscles of your faith, the muscles of you having to know the word of God, the the muscles of your praise, the muscles of your witness, the muscles of your generosity and your giving and being a builder. All of a sudden you begin to experience strength happen and it's a new anointing that's being released out of your life, but it's because of the pressure. This is why I mean it's not meant to destroy you, it's meant to reveal you. This is what God's doing. And here's the beautiful thing about a new anointing. A new anointing in your life that comes as a result of the pressing breaks the yoke off of the lives of others. Isaiah chapter 10 says that it's the anointing that breaks the yoke. You see, it's not just for you. God's not just releasing and needs to release a new anointing through you for you, 
but it's because of those who are waiting for deliverance on the other side. On the other side of your obedience, there's somebody that needs a breakthrough. And this is the fresh oil that I'm talking about. We can't live like we've always lived. These are new days. Well, you know, I've always read a chapter or a verse of the Bible, if I can get around to it, and I say, you know, a little five-minute prayer, guess what? That was great in 1990, maybe, but it ain't going to do it today. Today, you're going to need to pray in the Spirit. Today, you're going to need to memorize the Word of God. Today, instead of scrolling through Instagram, you need to start scrolling through your Bible. We need to have worship music on in our home. We need to make sure that we're speaking life over situations, that we're not getting caught up in the cynical, jaded arguments and politics and lies and a spirit of accusation and slander of this hour. Let us be marked by the praise that comes out of our mouth. Which leads us to the third and the final thing, which is... New, new wine leads to fresh oil that leads to old fire. 2 Timothy chapter, six, chapter 1, verse 6, Paul is reminding Timothy, he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us fearful, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You see, old fire means this. Without old fire, there can be no new fire. Now, when the Lord spoke this word to me, I knew it was God because this is not what I would have come up with. I would have come up with new fire or, you know, fresh fire. And when the Holy Spirit whispered this to me, no, old fire, I'm like, now, what do you mean by old fire? He says, look it up. So I began to study. <laughs> so I began to study. It's like, come on, God, you're not Google? And he's like, oh, I want you to go study this. <clears throat> and as I began to study fire, here's what's interesting. We take things for granted, fire. If you want fire, you just pull out your little candle lighter. You know, we've got those things, like five of them in a drawer from Costco. You pull them out and click, 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 and you got fire. Go to the stove, click, 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 you got fire. Matches, you've got fire. We've got fire everywhere. We can have instant fire. Do you know that that is a relatively recent reality? For most of human history, fire was very difficult to get. And when you had it, it made the difference between life and death. Because fire is what kept you warm. Fire is what cooked your food. Fire is what boiled your water so you didn't get sick. Fire is what kept predators away. Fire is what united people. They gathered around, sat around fires. That's where community was developed. Fire was significant. Without fire, you had no life. And so when you got fire, it was very difficult. Jane and I, one of our guilty pleasures on Sunday nights is we watch the show. And you, you might think differently of me. Uh, but we, we, we love this show called Naked and Afraid. Has anybody seen that show? <clears throat> they're not, re- I mean, they're naked, but there's blurred out. But, <laughs> they're, but what they do is they take people, strip them of all their resources, drop them in like a jungle, and they have to survive for 21 days. I mean, it, it gets wild. Them trying to make fire. These people who are survivalists, I know how to make fire, I make a, a bow fire, and they're trying to do it, but the wood's too wet and they can't get fire. Or they get fire, you know, they, they're trying to use flint to get fire. And you realize, it's like, this is how it's always been. This is how, when people needed to get fire, this is how they did it. You know, nobody walked up. Abraham didn't like carry around a Bic lighter and it's like, all right, all right there we go, get that going. We got one of those gas logs that we can start... You had to like cut wood. <clears throat> and the thing about ancient fire is that because it was life and death, once you had it, you didn't want to lose it. So in nomadic people, which Abraham, our faith comes from a sojourner, a, a nomadic people. In nomadic peoples, 
one of the most important people to civilization were the fire keepers. Fire keepers not only made sure that the fire kept going, kept wood supplied, kept it stoked when everyone was sleeping, made sure when it rained that it was covered or taken to a separate environment so that it could be reignited, kept the coals fanned, just like Paul tells Timothy. Keep fanning into flame the embers of your faith. Don't let the fire go out. And most importantly, here's the key, is when a nomadic people would move from where they've been camping and where they've been hunting and the season shifts and it's time to go to a new place, it was the fire keeper who was responsible for bringing fire with them. So what the fire keeper would do is he would create wool and flax and twigs and a, a little bundle and he would take coals, he would take embers, hot coals, and place them in the flax and in the wool and in the sticks so that it wouldn't ignite, but it would smolder inside. And they were responsible for carrying it from where they were in the last season to where they were going next. And when they got to the new place and they said, this is where we're setting up camp, then they would take it and they would blow into the embers. They would blow wind into the embers, reignite the embers so that they had fire. You need old fire to get new fire. Well, what does it have to do with what God is doing in the earth today? Well, I believe with all of my heart that scattered all over our nation and cities like Edmond and Oklahoma City, as well as in Kalamazoo, Michigan, unseen to the natural eye, sometimes just in families and in homes and in generations, unseen to the naked eye, there are still embers of moves of God that have gone down from flames down into coals that still lie at ancient campsites where the people of God camped around that we've forgotten about that in these days God wants to draw coals from and reignite them. Reignite the old fires. So last year, we're in, uh, in 2019, our church bought a building in downtown Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo is per capita the most progressive liberal uh, city in the Midwest. <clears throat> we, like, uh, Bernie Sanders was way too conservative for our city. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. <laughs> so we're a university town. I mean, way out there. And the Lord spoke to us about going right downtown Kalamazoo on the mall, uh, which is a walking mall, and purchasing a building for the purpose of building a prayer room where worship and prayer would ascend before God morning, noon, and night every single day. And we knew that someday we would do something like this. All I was looking for was a room. I just wanted a room. And we started looking and shopping and looking at buildings. We couldn't find anything. We bought two months before the pandemic struck. We, got, we, we bought this building. <clears throat> and since that time, we've renovated this building. It's 30,000 square foot on three levels. We ended up buying parcels of it. So it's all together. We just invested about $5 million into this building and we put a prayer room at the center of it. And so morning, noon, and night, every single day, we have our school of worship students that are leading worship, our pastors and different prayer leaders are leading prayer meetings, and it's happening from the center of our city, but it has not gone uncontested, trust me. When the Roe v. Wade decision came down in June, we had protesters out in front of our building, spray painted abort God across the front of our building. Uh, protesters that were harassing young people from our school of ministry that were coming to pray. And I mean, just warfare on another level that we have never experienced. But yet we knew we're, we're tapping into something. Yes. We just don't know what, what in the world could it be? So about six months, seven months ago, somebody brought me a book called Revival Fire by a guy named uh, Duell. 
And it's a history of revivals that swept across America. And he said, have you ever read this book? I said, I think I've seen it. And he says, you need to read page 34, last paragraph. So he, he marked it. I took the book and I read it. And it talks about something called the noontime prayer meeting that took place in downtown New York in the 1880s, 1860s and 70s, where a missionary or a, a, a pastor missionary named Jeremiah Lamphere started a noontime prayer meeting that began with one person who was a half an hour late <laughs> in downtown Manhattan, New York, and that six months later, it became 5,000 people all across New York, and then it spread across the United States. We're in Chicago, in Detroit, in Kansas City, and cities across America. So literally, at one point, there were hundreds of thousands of people praying every noon for revival in America. And as I look down on page 34, it says Kalamazoo, Michigan, also experienced this revival that there were five denominations, five churches that met in downtown Kalamazoo and every single noonday for six weeks prayed together and over the course of six weeks, 500 people were born again and saved and brought in the kingdom of God. That's out of a total population of 8,000 people. And what I realized is that the location, I went to the library and looked it up, the location was in what's called Bronson Park. There's five churches around the park. It's where Abraham Lincoln came. He preached or he uh, ran for office in this particular park. The churches, the Presbyterian, the Methodist, the Reformed Church, the Congregational Church, we're all in this area. And our prayer room is 50 feet from where the, that prayer meeting, that revival had shaken our city. The embers were below the surface. In my own life, I, that I began this message talking about my grandparents, the embers of my grandparents' faith were resident on the inside of me. As I began to look at Kalamazoo a little bit deeper, I realized something else. I, I got one of these 30-day free memberships to Ancestry.com, jumped on there, punched in all of my grandparents' information, and come to find out my great-great-grandmother lived and got saved in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Wow. Died on my birthday in 1922. She's buried in a cemetery in an unmarked grave, 150 yards from our building. And after she got saved, my I asked my grandmother before she passed, she said, oh yeah, your grandma Lillian Kilborn Bird, she used to pray for her family and pray for the city that God would move again in our city. Can I just tell you, there are unseen embers of old fires all over the place. You have them in your family. You have them in the city. We have them all over our country. And you can't see them. Hell can see them. And hell wants to keep you distracted from them. But heaven wants to bring our attention to them so that we will begin to pray and our prayers will be like wind, like breath upon those old embers saying, God, do it again in our day. Do it for our kids. Do it for my grandkids. Do it in our churches. We don't want comfortable Christianity. Lord, bring the pressing, release the wine, and bring the fire. I want to close with just reading the lyrics to an old hymn that a man named William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, wrote years and years ago. He says, Thou Christ of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire. Thy blood-bought gift today we claim. Send the fire. Look down and see this waiting host. Give us the promised Holy Ghost. We want another Pentecost. Send the fire today. We want another Pentecost. I believe what the Lord is looking for in this hour right now is he's looking for fire carriers. Somebody who will say, Lord, if you will light the fire, blow upon the embers. If you'll set an ember of revival in my heart, I will carry it. I'll protect it. I'll pray into it. See, what he's looking for is a generation. I believe he's raising up a generation 
of young people and old people who will say, I'll say no to a thousand things so I can say yes to one thing. I'll go through whatever pressing so I can have a new anointing. Lord, I might've been filled with the Holy Spirit 50 years ago, but I need it like I've never needed it before today. I need a brand new Pentecost. And God, I'm saying, I will not allow my heart to become a de facto altar to the spirit of this age, to the Baal of, and the Molech of this age. My heart will become a flaming fire, an altar for the fire of God. I want to be a carrier of that flame. I'm going to pray like I've never prayed before. I'm going to believe. I'm going to blow on those embers and I'm going to do whatever it takes that in our generation, we will be able to say at the end of it, God, you did it before and now you've done it again in us. He's looking for men to do it. He's looking for women to do it. He's looking for grandmothers to do it. He's looking for teenagers to do it. He's looking for kids to do it. There is no JV Holy Spirit. He's looking for great grandparents to do it, business leaders to do it, worship leaders to do it. He's looking for all of us to do it. He's looking for those who will say, here am I, I will carry the fire. And here's what I wanna challenge us with tonight. If you, as I've been talking, as I've been teaching, I believe that there's two conversations that have been going on. One is you listening to my words. And the other is an internal conversation. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to some of us already, saying it's you. And you can argue your way out of it and say, God, I don't know how to do that. That's not me. It's too complicated. I'm not that spiritual. I don't know the Bible. I don't know how to pray. I'm just, you know, whatever. No, if he's talking to you, it's because you're marked. And you don't need to know how. You just need to know him. But if there's something on the inside of you that says, this is what I was created for, and this is what I will give my life to, I will be a fire carrier. Then I wanna pray for you, and I want you to right now, and I want you to take this seriously. I want you to stand up where you're at. If you believe God's calling you to be a carrier of the fire, I want you to stand to your feet. You probably would not be here tonight if you didn't already have a sense that this is what you were created to do. But I believe God is raising up corporately churches like New Song in cities all across America who will care for the flames, who will go through the pressing and who will welcome the new wine. I want you to raise your hands all over this room. Father, tonight, this is my prayer. My assignment is to bring the message, Holy Spirit, your office work is to impart the flame. So I'm praying right now, Lord, the embers that are already in these hearts and in this place and in this church, even the embers that Josh and Sarah carry because of their parents and the embers that even they carry because of names that we don't know but heaven has cataloged very well. We pray, Lord, that you would once again entrust the embers of the next move of God to this house that this would be a, a tent pole established to hold up the tent of the tabernacle of David, the presence of God across America. Lord, this would be a, this would be a reservoir of living water, a house of revival marked beyond normal cultural Christianity, but a prophetic voice a place that's covered in the oil of pressing and the anointing that breaks yokes. Lords, there's gonna come a day when people walk into this building and are set free without even being prayed for. They're gonna hear the voice of God without anybody even speaking to them. They're gonna sense the presence of God, know who they are, know what their identity is and every lie is gonna fall off like a Halloween costume. Lord, I declare right now that there are orphans who are gonna find a family. Sons and daughters are gonna be raised up in this house. Songs are gonna come out of this house. Books are gonna come out of this house that carry a prophetic message, not the brand mark of cultural Christianity, but with the prophetic mark, the prophetic mark of heaven. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, blow upon the embers that you are depositing and imparting right now. I pray for everyone who is serious, who stood up. Lord, put the coals 
into their hearts as they tend the flame. Cause us to burn for Jesus. Lord, let tonight be a landmark milestone moment. We draw a line in the sand and we say, normal was left yesterday. From now on, from now on, this is a critical hour, God. Do a new thing. Do a new thing in new song. A new thing in this city. A new thing in this generation. Raise up prophets. Raise up apostles. Raise up pastors, teachers, and evangelists. Worship leaders. Raise up politicians. Raise up teachers. Raise up moms and dads. Grandparents. To carry the flame in this hour, God. Come on, cry out to God. You right now, ask Him to deposit the flame and the coals in your heart tonight. Come on, cry out to God. Cry out in desperation. 